this electronic mail thing is going to be hot, uh, folks. Yeah, just plug in your 300 baud modem, and four hours later, that email will get there, right? <laughs> <laughs> So hey everybody, welcome to episode 122 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hi there. And I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we also have Mark Rubin on the phone from San Jose, California. Hello. Not really a phone, though, is it? It's good, though. uh, It's kitchen-shaped phone. Kitchen-shaped phone? Okay. Computer-shaped. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, we'll talk, about, we'll talk about transmitting lasers to computers later on. Perfect. You got some MTJC askings. Hashtag. Yeah, so it actually started a conversation with uh, Jaime and myself. I was preparing for the course last night, um, teaching Swift again this week, and I was going through the Mark um, way of adding Pragma Marks in Swift, which is done with a forward, two forward slashes, or it's actually two slashes, because they're not really forward slashes, and uppercase Mark, and then a colon, and, that, and then whatever description you want to put in separates, um, creates a separator in the jump bar for you to look at your code. And Jaime was saying last week that he was lamenting that there was no sort of line uh, available once I sent him a screenshot. And in our class today, one of the one of the guys discovered that you can actually put in um, uh, just a mark by itself with a colon, and uh, that will create a line for you. And um, then I think Jesse, it was Jesse, or not Jesse, um, sure. which Jesse. guy was it? Not, it not Jesse. started out as uh, Justin Stanley, and then Justin, it was followed yeah. up by Jesse Catterwall. Yeah, so Justin had mentioned that he, before I got back to, to Jaime about it, that if you just put the mark in by itself, uh, it would do that as well. So, And then Jaime got into this big conversation with the two guys. So why don't you tell us what you guys discussed online there, Jaime? Yeah, so after it kind of diverged from the original, like fixing my misunderstanding of how it worked, because uh, apparently it works pretty much just like it does in Objective-C, um, it turned out to be a discussion about, like, what do you use that for like using the the breakage the line breakage and horizontal line rule sort of thing and uh, my take on it is that i prefer to have it for like big logical chunks um you know like if you have ib actions if you have uh protocol conformance um delegate type stuff and uh i'll even throw in auto layout in there if there's you know a fair amount of breakup to, to do that, like some sort of complicated layout uh, system. Um, and extensions, in my mind, seem like they would fit that as well because they, they do kind of show up as a little orange um, icon with, I think, EX, if I'm not mistaken, on it That's in right, the yeah. jump bar. But it like that doesn't jump out to me. I like the lines um, to be there say, look, look, this is an extension. This isn't part of like the normal bar of the view controller because it might be an extension that adds some sort of conformance for all you know. Uh, and I think it would be totally nice if Xcode 9 was to have the information just show up automatically. Like I'm already in, you know, blah view controller. Uh, I don't really need to see extension blah view controller again. I kind of already know that, you know, just show automatically the what is the extension here? Is it for... Um, you know, deep link routable type thing. You could technically have, though, more, I mean, not that you would do this, but you could have more than one class or a struct in a class in single file, and then uh, that's why I think that we'd have to tell you which, which extension it is. And Jesse sent a screenshot to you 
uh, earlier, um, and he's got like you know an extension for Sketch View Controller and then an extension for Sketch Video Controller within the same. Uh, oh, sorry, I guess it's the same thing. Oh my god! Yeah, um, see, that's exactly my point. That is, it's yeah, like, it's confusing. confusing. So, so ideally, it would show you know Sketch View Controller and then I don't know like a colon and then. I don't know, dependency routable or something. You know, right, I'm, I'm yeah. sure I'm making something up here. So mm-hmm. you could discern those things pretty easily. Um, so I don't know. Uh, what do you guys think? What do you normally use the, if you use the Pragma Bark stuff, what, how is your your general style for that? I do something very similar to what you were describing. Uh, definitely have all the different delegate collections of methods in its own little block separated by a bar and and all of the UI actions, uh, not necessarily just IB actions, but but uh, any methods that respond to actions are all in their own little section there. And then I have a uh, view lifecycle uh, section as well with view did load, you know, view did appear, and all those kind of in one place together. So same kind of thing as you. Cool. So I think um, <laughs> it'll just depend on everybody's personal take there and personal style. And I think the general idea is to make sure that this fits into this coding style that your team is doing. I mean, if it's just you, I mean, do whatever you want. It's a team of one. But if you're like in a larger group, I, at least talk to people about this and in what you, you guys think is the best thing to do. Yeah. And I think if you, if you don't have sort of um, acceptable rules in terms of how, you know, files are laid out or coded or whatever, um, you can end up with what I like to call the massive view controller, MVC, um, and using pragma marks and, and ways of defining, dividing out, dividing out the product, the, the pieces makes it a little more clearer in terms of what, what each part of the app is doing or each part of the class or file is doing. Right. So rather than just piling in all these methods and stuff, which, which has happened. Yeah. And I find that, you know, the, the practical reality of legacy code is sometimes I've come across code bases where it just wasn't really feasible to make big changes and turn in a massive view controller into something else given time constraints. But at the very least, shuffling around the code and organizing it this way is sort of like the first proto step towards, okay, well, what could we do with these table view delegates? What could we do with this table view data source stuff? What could we do with um, you know UI image picker controller stuff? Um, it doesn't do anything in terms of architecture, but it certainly makes it you know, much easier to wrap your head around the massive view controller. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And nice shout out to uh, Jesse about his Steinberger guitar that he's holding in, <laughs> in the screenshot there. <laughs> All right. Those are the ones without the without the head on the top of the neck. Sure. And he's got the tilted frets, right? I think. Are they tilted frets? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. That. I don't know about that, but maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So moving on. Um, I, as a follow-up item, I, this morning I received, uh, I think I signed up for the setup beta program sometime last week. And this morning, as I was, you know, having my morning uh, coffee, I saw that I got an invite for the setup beta to apply. And uh, today was the day you could apply for an account. So I went ahead and uh, signed up and just had to show them a Visa card number. And uh, they have sent me a link to download the set app and uh, I've installed it. I've got a folder that sits in my dock now, or I can access it from my, my menu bar. And there's, I don't know, umpteen apps in here now. So um, some of the ones, some of the names I recognize are like screens, uh, rapid weaver, 
what else have we got in here? Clean my Mac. Um, this is some FTP clients. And what's cool about it is, is, uh, the first time you click on an app, they're actually, I guess they're still up in the cloud. Um, but if I, uh, if I click on an app, it'll, t- it'll get open like a sort of an app store preview, show me what the app looks like. And, uh, t- you know, describes to me what the app does. If, if I've never heard of it before, I can decide whether I want to use it or not or what have you. So, um, it's kind of cool. I haven't, haven't really played with any of the apps. Some of them, I, like I said, I've, I've seen them before and I've used them before. But uh, So we'll give this a shot and see how it goes. Are you starting to pay for the mat, uh, for setup now? No, it's in beta in, in January, beta. I believe. Yeah, so I think uh, sometime in the spring it becomes $10 a month, which is cheaper than my, my Audible uh, subscription. So maybe, you know, I, I don't read that many books. I don't read a book a, a month, per se, or listen to a book per month. So... It's kind of an inexpensive way to sort of try out some of these apps, right? So Yeah. Well, it depends if the apps are any good. Um, so when this was announced yesterday, I think I, I read Jason Snell's account of it on sixcolors.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, his point was basically, you know, it's my number one concern is, is there a, you know, sufficient collection of apps that it's going to be interesting to use? Um, because if you're paying 10 bucks a month and you're not using any of these apps, then... Yeah, doesn't make right. any sense, right? Yeah. So that's sort of the big question, you know, like the the only clue that I have without being on the beta or, you know, being a customer is the screenshots that I see, which show the folder that contains those apps. Um, and I recognize a few and some of them are of some interest, but overall I remain unconvinced, I guess. Like I saw Ulysses, for example, looks interesting. But stuff like Clean My Mac and, you know, any given FTP app, you know, I already own Transmit, for example, and don't even use it much these days. Um, you know what I mean? So, like... Yeah, it reminds me of, me of those CDs you used to get back in the day where you'd have, like, sample apps and, you know, you get, like, a CD of stuff and you may or may not try them. Or or even, I think we talked about uh, buying bundled apps in the past where maybe two or three titles you wanted to get, uh, the rest were just sort of came along with, you know? Right. You know, but if, if there were only two apps, you know, is that worthwhile spending $10 a month? Well, or $120 a year when you get down to it, right? So, Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that's like the calculus I think everybody's going to have to make is like, does this have the value for you or should you just just straight up buy these things? Probably most of these are going to have uh, alternative methods of, of getting them from their developer's own website. Um, I'd be interested to see. I Hopefully, they'll, they'll get a real good strong list that... Uh, you know, if it doesn't meet my needs, hopefully it meets a lot of people's needs and is successful. Um, but I do think that that, um, you know, 120 a year or $10 a month wouldn't be too hard to, to get to the point of like, you know, if one really good app, um, let's say like uh, like Sketch, like I don't know that I would buy Sketch alone for 120 since I could get it for 100. But if I get Sketch and another Sketch equivalent uh, for use, um I'm already ahead there because that would be 200 a year. So I'm saving $80. So uh, I I don't know what that's really going to mean. Like, yeah, there's going to be, you know, a whole bunch of little apps here and there that like, you know, like the humble bundle stuff is always like $5,000 or probably like $500 worth. I'm like, well, this app is like the vast majority of that, in my opinion. And and here's these other ones that are more like the stocking stuffer kind of apps that go along. Yeah. I'm just noticing here. There's one app that I already own on here. Yeah, I mean, there's a few apps here. There's one kind of fundamental difference between this and the the CDs of a bunch of apps that we were talking about earlier. Uh, in that, in with those, once you bought 
the package, you own all the apps. Uh, with this one, if you decide to cancel the service for what, for whatever reason, then you lose access to the to the app, right? Right, right. That's right. So, so it isn't just necessarily if you find an app that you really, really like and use a lot and plan to use it for a long time, it might actually be more cost beneficial to buy it outright uh, because if it, if it is say the only app in the in the set that you like, uh, then are you going to continue paying ten bucks a month for years and years or, or whatever? Uh, just to get access to that one app, it's a, it's an interesting question, but but uh, but a moot point if they have a lot of good apps. So we'll just have to see what they come up with. Right. Yeah, I think that they said that they were they were going to um, curate the apps that are going in here, right? So I think they have a certain bar that you kind of have to um, meet in terms of getting getting selected for this. The apps that I recognize are good quality apps. You know. Uh, Things like Findings, Rapid Weaver is well-regarded, Hype, very well-regarded, uh, Screens, I use, um, and it's excellent, uh, Ulysses, very well-regarded. So that gives me confidence that the apps I don't recognize are probably very good as well. Um, but again, I don't know that I'm, I would ever use them, per se. Like Renamer, I see Renamer here, and I'm guessing that's a file renaming yeah. utility. Yeah. Um, probably not going to use that, you know? Um yeah, good is a relative term. You know, good for one person doesn't necessarily mean useful for another person. I guess I just mean, is is it a quality app? And I think you can be pretty objective about that, that it, it's, a, it's a good quality app. Whether it is going to be the solution to every person's problem is obviously, well, that's sure. impossible. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think their head is in the right place. Uh, it's just it really does come down to uh, how 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 are they going to acquire apps? Like it's funny, you know, Jaime, you brought up Sketch, and that's actually a really interesting example because they've just moved to a model where they're kind of subscriptiony. You know, uh, uh -huh. you can buy it, you buy it outright right now, uh, but you you will have the opportunity to buy it again next year and get all updates for the ne next year, right? Um, so I can't actually see them going into setup. Um, I'll bet you Setup would love to have them, but I don't think that Sketch would want to be in here because uh, they wouldn't make nearly enough um, compared to what they are making now. So um, I don't think that would apply. This is sp seems specifically for apps that are buy once, own forever, and Sketch isn't that kind of app anymore. But yeah, other apps, you know, like, can you think of any examples of apps that you would like to see here that are that you consider reasonable to appear here? Like, for example, mail apps that are free, you know, they would never appear here, right? Because yeah. you can just get them for free. <laughs> Something like Paw would fit in well here. Oh, yeah. Paw right. would be excellent. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. would be an excellent one. I already own that, though. Um, <laughs> well, right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, obviously. Yeah, this definitely leans much more towards the, like, I'm just getting started sort of thing. Especially if they have a, like, we what kind of role do you have? Well, we suggest that you use these. This is great for designers. This is great for sysops. This is great for, you know, iOS developers. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of help people. But for folks uh, who already have a ton of these tools, it's kind of a, a hard bargain, I think, at this point. Yeah. 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 Fantastic How would be a terrific addition. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. kind of a catch-22 here in that the best apps don't need to be in something like this because people are going to buy them anyway. Of course. Yeah. It would be a coup for them. <laughs> so I think yeah. this ends up being an area of um, similarity to to make a sports ball reference here to the mid-majors in NCAA college basketball. 
So there's the, the, the top tier teams, you know, you know who those schools are. They're like, oh, yeah, I know them. And UNC and all them. And then there's <laughs> these kind of mid-majors that are like, they're not, you know, the small minnows in, in, the, in the pool, but they're not really the, the, the big dogs either, right? So I'm thinking of like, you know, Gonzaga would be close enough where like... Oh, yeah, that was an excellent you, guess, yes. Yeah, if you get enough of those teams... Uh, together, they can create their own uh, conference that isn't, you know, the same as like the power conferences. But collectively, they get enough traction and like, hey, they start pushing for their ability to play in the tournament, and they get special things called like, you know, the bracket busters, where they can, you know, sort of play their way into a really good spot that they wouldn't normally get. I feel like that sort of thing is what could happen here. We're, we're, I think we're right. You're not going to get, you know, Adobe Photoshop and sketch and, and, and these other ones perhaps but if you get those people who are just under that elite tier and enough of them then this might be really successful mm-hmm. mars edit do you think mars edit would be here hmm don't know mm, yeah it's an interesting one because like that one you would use it frequently it would provide uh some level of stability uh to red sweater software possibly yeah i, I could see that yeah, yeah I think it's kind, of, kind of more of a niche thing too, right? So it kind of benefits from being part of the the collective huddle of of other apps. Definitely. Hmm. Well, so do you plan to stick with it, Tim, and um, and spend those ten dollars a month? My intention was actually to take one for the team and just sort of try it out, and see what what comes of it. I was curious to see what apps were there already, and you know, give them a whirl. Um, I mean, I have a few apps that I use rather infrequently, but steady enough that I probably should, you know, if having had bought them at one time, um, you know, that umpteen years ago and still continuing to use them and, you know, um, use them in my business, right? So CyberDuck is one that I use. I have to use that for Rackspace stuff. A Wi-Fi Explorer I already have. I already already bought that from the App Store. Um, that might be one Vir- virus barrier plus that's a, another one that people don't really think about that might be worthwhile having in there. Right. Um, you know, so I think if, if it's going to be sort of utilities, I'm not really sure that, that in the long term I would feel good about sticking with it, but you know, if, if, uh, you know, an app that, that I use on a regular basis came up and I felt I was getting my $10 a month sort of value out of one or two things, um, would work for me. I have a sort of like when, it, if I can use the analogy of buying music, uh, CDs and things like that, I always sort of had a two or three song rule. Like I had to like two or three songs off a CD before I would actually buy the disc, um, and I find that that generally is true in most cases. If if I like a cut, you know, a couple of different songs from a, an artist or a collection, um, I tend to like the the entire mix. But I've only been burned by that once. But uh, sort of, you know, so if if it's two or three hits, you know, are, are per month sort of coming out of this, um, yeah, I might stick with it. Who knows? Like I said, it's still less expensive than my Audible uh, subscription, right? Yeah. Well, depends on how you feel that calculus works out. Yeah, yeah. Keep us keep us up to date. Yeah, for sure. It will. BuddyBuild is a mobile-optimized, continuous integration and delivery platform that takes just minutes to set up. Thousands of mobile development teams love BuddyBuild because it's the fastest way to distribute their apps to users and gather bug reports, feedback, and crash reports. Then, use built-in integrations for bug trackers and tools like Slack to seamlessly integrate that information back into their development process. With a simple screenshot, testers can send their feedback directly to you, along with important diagnostic details. If your app ever crashes, BuddyBuild will record the frequency, affected users, and traces back to the exact lines of source code that caused the crash in the first place. 
BuddyBuild gives you even better visibility into crashes with Instant Replay, a video recording that shows exactly what your users were doing when the app crashed, giving you the exact steps needed to repro the issue. BuddyBuild gives development teams like yours perfect insight into bugs and empowers you to iterate on your app faster than ever, knowing you're building an app your users love. Join the thousands of developers who have already added BuddyBuild to their development process. Try it free today at BuddyBuild.com. All right, so uh, Jaime, you have uh, a couple of things you've added to the talk here about uh, Swifty Swift. Yeah, um, so this topic is by um, Federico Zanatello, and he works um, over at Kimchi Media. And when I looked them up, they apparently they have a, a transportation app for uh, the city of Bangkok. Uh, but his example is specifically around using. Uh, new features in iOS and taking advantage of Swift's, um, what is it called? The pound available or hashtag available uh, pragma macro. I'm not sure what technically it is, but it looks like either one. And the example he gives is UI preview interaction, which is new to iOS 10. Uh, but let's say you have a class that, you know, you, you want it to have backwards compatibility and, and work reasonably fine on uh, iOS 9, but you want all this uh, great preview interaction stuff for uh, for peak and pop on iOS 10. Uh, and he shows an example of like using um, properties, you know, in a uh, any and you know equals nil by like by default, and then using the pound available in uh, in various areas like in init to say, okay, well, if this is available, for, you know, for iOS 10, then set that property to the UI preview interaction class, right? So sort of taking advantage of that um, that any type declaration. And then also similarly using the the same thing for the protocol conformance and, and just shoving the, um, the stuff in, uh, funny enough, in an extension, which we were just talking about, so that the uh, compiler won't complain, right? This is uh, sort of the, I guess, the more modern analog to what you would normally do in Objective-C, which, you know, doesn't really care. You define methods, um, or you write methods, and if they happen to be things that are there, it'll call them. Uh, you used to have to do the like response to selector type stuff to, to just really make sure that it actually does do that. And sometimes you had to check for like, you know, is this actually available uh, for you know, various property keys and stuff. Uh, but I like this example here to show how it's uh, pretty clean and understandable in um, in Swift two. Um, I don't know if this changed at all in Swift 3. I'd have to look that up. I don't believe so. It's definitely cleaner than, than Objective-C for sure. There was all sorts of different ways you had to check that. You know, it seemed to change every every year or two, you know, checking the version number or whatever of the iOS, uh, you know, what iOS uh, the OS version. Um, so, yeah, this is this is pretty nice. Yeah, and the thing I like about this is that the compiler were immediately complained to you where you would have to you know, be very diligent in, um, in Objective-C to like, whoops, let me make sure to do that check. Um, yeah, and it's, here the it's, a, it's like, a runtime check in, in Objective-C, which can be right. very dangerous. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this static compile time check will like immediately let you know, say, oh, sorry, I need to go take care of that. Yeah. Is this the sort of thing that you guys uh, are using in your day-to-day Swift? I am, yeah. Uh, we use uh, almost exactly this technique to manage a few different things in our app. And I can't go into any detail about it, so there. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so let me ask um, maybe something that doesn't reveal too much. Uh, 
are you using it in general as a oh just latest and greatest or do you have multiple sort of pound available uh, handlings like oh if this is eight if this is nine if yes and yeah um so yeah we're doing different things depending on which uh if you're using ios 10 versus 9 and uh, we're only supporting nine up okay and do any of those or, or do any of you have any that are like minor version specific? I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head <laughs> no, that would really so. run into this, like, oh, well, 9.1 requires this or uh, 10.2 is what will be required for this. No, I've never done that. Yeah. Cool. Good to know. Because that would be ugly, man. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be rough to keep track of all that. Yeah. I think, you know, we tend to assume that uh, you if you're on like 10, then you're on the latest 10. And same with nine. If you're on nine, you're on the latest nine. And I think if any user wrote in with a problem, you would say, you know, update, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But since, and it's, that's automatic anyway. So I think the one yeah. that sort of came to mind was, was not iOS. I don't think it was iOS version specific, but it was, um, and we talked about it on the show a, f- a few weeks back. It was the hardware availability, I think, for getting access to the uh, Taptic engine on the new iPhones. I think somebody figured out that that's sort of just swallowed up invisibly by um, Apple. If you tried uh, setting it up for like a six plus instead of a, a seven yeah. plus, that rings a bell. In any case, this will uh, this sort of stuff will keep your app from crashing and you having a very very difficult time on some random weekend. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, We've had to, we've had to use this in similar things like Mark said in, in Objective C. By the way, um, I just looked it up here. Available is an attribute. So, oh, is that box. what is considered? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And you can check, you know, uh, platform type and version number as well in there. Cool. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of attributes in uh, in the language. There's a declaration attribute is what it is. It's part of a bunch of other things like available and introduced, obsolete, obsoleted. Really? I never knew that was a word. Okay. The next one is on uh, Bluetooth 5. So the um, Bluetooth special interest group has officially adopted the spec, which includes here four times the range, two times the speed, and eight times the broadcast message capacity, while also um, reducing uh, potential interference with other uh, wireless technologies, and apparently still has a uh, lower energy profile. But I don't know what that means in comparison to, like, Bluetooth LE, the uh, bits that are commonly used in uh, wearables. Uh, but I thought that was that was pretty cool. So uh, within two to six months, they expect to see hardware um, coming out in the actual market. So sometime in 2017, you'll see this stuff. Yeah, my understanding is that it's a successor more to Bluetooth 3, which is the standard Bluetooth, as opposed to Bluetooth 4, which is BTLE, Bluetooth Low Energy, which is the one that's used for wearables. So Bluetooth uh, 3 has the protocols for sending audio and mice and keyboards and, and relatively higher bandwidth information, uh, which, of course, needs more power to to work, uh, as opposed to Bluetooth 4, which is very, very small, just a couple of bytes of, of data that's sent back and forth, and that's what's used typically in, in most of the wearables uh, these days. Now, what's interesting with respect to Apple is that Bluetooth 3, standard Bluetooth, uh, is still not, as far as I know, it's still not easily accessible with Apple devices. So so in order to send data, 
from a Bluetooth 3 device to an iOS device, you need to go through the MFP program made for, well, it used to be made for iPod, made for iPhone, made for whatever. Uh, and at one time, at least, uh, Apple required you to have a special security chip in your hardware, as well as pay a royalty fee to Apple to in order to do that. So, so there weren't, there wasn't that much adoption. Now, having said that, for audio it was different. You could always connect to Bluetooth audio, but this is if you want to send data directly. Now, Bluetooth LE changed that. Uh, you can you can for free just directly connect to Bluetooth LE, Bluetooth four device from your iPhone. So now this is an this is an interesting thing that it will it will see what, what will happen uh, I have no idea at this point uh, if they've really lowered the energy that'll make it much more much more interesting uh, for connecting to higher bandwidth devices uh, but yet will Apple let us do that without going through a lot of extra hoops don't know yet to be seen yeah uh, it, in terms of usage for something like wearables uh, I don't know how it will shake out versus the, the current le spec. Yeah. Um, if it had low enough energy to to not tear up your you know like your Apple Watch's battery life, it would be kind of nice. When you, when you look at you know double the speed, hey, that's great. Like I, I'm constantly waiting. You know, even with Watch OS three. Uh, granted, I have the um, the series original Gangsta, uh, so I don't have a series two to, to compare. Uh, constantly waiting for for data to to port over um, for things that aren't in my dock. Um, range, uh, not a huge deal, you would think, in terms of like, well, you know, phone is in my house sort of thing. Um, but heaven almighty, like, just having stuff like, you know, your phone is in your bag or something can immediately decrease that range. So if they can increase mm-hmm. the range 4x, so where it would be, you know, down the street, go, hey, that's yeah. perfect, because it's clearly will work in my house when I'm downstairs in the garage or something. Yeah. Um, and the broadcast message capacity could be huge because that's eight times as much, uh, you know, like what it can handle. So if I'm stressing this at all, I'll have um, my iPhone connected to my Apple Watch and then also have that uh, phone connected to my uh, my Bluetooth headphones. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes during like a, I don't know, let's call it like an hour long uh, audio session, I'll hear a little hiccup like the Bluetooth hadn't like caught up in whatever buffer it was dealing with. So if this could help eliminate that, that would be great. It's yeah. kind of like a first world problem, but uh, hey, I'm sure it probably has an impact on other bits of the experience too. Yeah, I should say that that everything I just said only well, won't apply to things like the Apple Watch if they use the technology. It's it only applies to third party hardware. If you as a developer want to build your own uh, accessory and use this technology, then that's where the the uh, the issues with Apple's royalty and whatnot would come in if if it if it does happen. Right, but even that sort of thing, like I know um, at the time, everybody got you know really hurt about it, and I think it was something similar for a Wi-Fi spec, but I could be wrong on that one. Maybe it was all Bluetooth related. But then this whole um, uh, attack on the DNS infrastructure by the uh, the Internet of Things got oh. everybody realizing, oh wait. Maybe it was worth paying like the extra money for for Apple's yeah. royalty system <laughs> instead of having these these cheap yeah. five dollar webcams that uh, got owned and used to attack other people. Yeah, true. 
Yeah, it does say in this post here that you po- in this link you posted here that uh, they're talking about the Internet of Things um, in terms of what this is um, going to improve, and that's like you know being able to cover your building or to be able to work inside and outside or in, even in c- commercial spaces because uh, of the limits of, of Bluetooth or you know th- or distance obviously and, and going through hardware and stuff like that. Um, kind of wonder if this is like trying to take on Wi-Fi to a certain extent as well, right? In that sense. Maybe for short range stuff. I mean, Bluetooth, current Bluetooth stuff hates concrete, hates metal, and um, and hates bodies of water, which would include human beings. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you saw this yeah. stuff with the the Bluetooth um, iBeacon type stuff, the waveforms that uh, right. I forget the gentleman's name who presented that stuff at uh, at 360 iDev a, a few years back. But it was incredible watching. Like, oh well, here's what should be a perfectly um, uniform circle if you're you know drawing this for for study but no this is actually what the waveform looks like in in 3d space and here's what happens when people start walking through this thing and how it just completely messes up the the signal and it makes uh i think indoor location was the situation it was using it for like very very tricky right right yeah i i still think it'll it'll be a while before it can challenge wi-fi just because of bandwidth capability uh it is actually much lower bandwidth than wi-fi if you tried to send a a gigabyte file over Bluetooth that would you'd be waiting for days, but but you know maybe with the new standard I, I don't I don't know what the new standard is but uh, I think it's it, it still probably won't be close to Wi-Fi at this point. So speaking of uh, Bluetooth enabled devices, yeah. So there were a few interesting articles that all kind of came out at the same time this week that uh, really kind of makes makes you wonder a little bit about what what's going on with the wearables market, specifically with the with the watch or the fitness band type market. Um, we've got these three articles that we picked out because they were, they're sort of sending mixed messages, it seems, about the state of, of that market. And we'll post those in the show notes. The first one is, is the sad news that, uh, Pebble, which was one of the early developers of the smart watch, uh, has shut down officially and sold off all their assets to Fitbit, who is another early but not as early as pebble and and company and, and more focused on on the fitness space uh rather than the, the general purpose smartwatch space so that seems to be consistent with some of the news that also came out regarding the apple watch sales figures uh which apparently have been pretty down if you if you follow some of these uh some of these articles uh, this one article that's that's in the notes is saying that the Apple Watch has dropped to just five percent of the the wearables market. So so this seems to be saying that the fitness trackers are are really taking over that space as opposed to just the more general purpose smartwatches, which is kind of interesting. Now none of this though uh, gels with what Tim Cook announced that the Apple Watch sales were were through the roof. So. Uh, um, let's see. I'm looking for a specific number. It says that. Uh, well, okay. He so he didn't actually say a number, uh, but he said that they were high. So it's yet to be seen what where that really is. Uh, but uh, it's something to keep an eye on because it is it is kind of a contradiction there to to what some of the, the analysts are saying. So I don't know. It, it does seem like things have gotten a little bit quiet from Apple with the uh, with the Apple Watch. We haven't seen any. Any, any real big news uh, coming out about it? Um, any opinions? 
Well, we did talk about um, the uh, Apple Watch being coming out of some of the high-end uh, stores in Paris and London yeah, you know, because, of that, because, because the sales were down. And, and that was just before the, the last announcement where we got the uh, the ceramic watch, right? Um or around that time, I think, or just just after that. And you're right. I saw this this uh, post on Reuters um, earlier this week about the fact that Apple says they sold 1.1 million units of Apple Watch in the third quarter of 2016, um, which is down from last year. But um, yeah, he's, he's he seems to think it's going to be great through the season. And it's funny. Another point too that we talked about when the watch first came out is we were all sort of wondering what the killer app would be because you know every platform needs to have some sort of thing that makes it go over the top and um fitness seems to be the thing that that a lot of people use their watches for in fact um, they you know the nike one i mean aaron was talking about getting the nike watch when it became available um and a lot of people are still are using fitbits and stuff like that um but that's a problem for apple because the the current price point for the apple watch is is just way too oh, it's high way for higher a, for yeah, a fitness yeah. device yeah, yeah and, and if that was the only thing that was the only thing the apple watch did i mean you know um for me, like the Apple Pay is probably the, the the number one reason I wear a watch these days. You know, uh, notifications being the other one, right? Yeah, I think the whole reason that that Pebble sort of couldn't get anywhere is sort of emblematic of what's happening here. I think um, so. Pebble was kind of caught in the middle um, at its price point. It was like kind of in the in its price point in what it gives you functionality wise it couldn't beat the price point of the Fitbit um which is considerably cheaper or uh, as this graph shows or this chart shows here things like the the Xiaomi Mi band which is like $15 like that's ridiculous right like it's competing against something that's one tenth the price um and for how much more functionality? Well, okay, let's look at the functionality access. Well, it's a lot less capable than the Apple Watch, with the exception of um, battery life, right? You don't really have the, the nice seamless integration with your Apple lifestyle, nor do you have uh, uh, the other apps and, and whatnot. So looking at it, at it that way, I, I do have some problems with um, sort of the, the wearables report because it's it's too broad of a category if you're including you know $15 bands that literally all it does is like uh, if it's the one I'm thinking of it, it just does the pedometer type stuff I don't think it does heart rate or anything else uh, against something that uh, is like a little micro computer monitor on your on your wrist like the Apple Watch uh, there's certainly some issues there like I I say this as somebody who's like pretty happy overall with um, my Apple Watch purchase, but I can definitely see that it's it's an accessory and and not a necessity, right? It, it's not hugely transformative. It just you know makes things a whole lot nicer in my life. Is that worth the what is it? I think it was three ninety nine US I paid at the time. I don't know, but the entry price is something like what two seventy nine I think uh, for for the similar model. So that's a whole lot closer to. Um, like Pebble's sort of um, price point. So, and, and I think that's why they ended up getting that, that huge pressure and ultimately folding. Um, these sorts of things, I think, are still going to be relatively cyclical in, in terms of the um, fitness aspect. Uh, 
I imagine they'll be hugely popular in December. They'll be hugely popular to, to, to purchase in December and hugely popular to use in like January and then tapering off in February. And right. then by March, everybody's gotten over their, I'm going to lose 20 pounds sort of New Year's resolution. And it just sits, you know, in the drawer. With that said, there there is an opportunity here because um, although there's some ethical concerns here, there are many uh, healthcare plans that are looking towards like, well, they'll save you or and or your employer money if you agree to use the Apple Watch for fitness uh, tracking and also use some of the um, the approved apps sort of thing, right? Sort of like trying to reduce healthcare costs. So, so maybe, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to be a huge thing. I'm not even sure it's going to be, you know, quite as big as like iPod. But I don't think it's necessarily like a problematic thing, right? So I think if you separate wearables out into, you know, sort of the, the top of the line area, like Apple absolutely dominates that, right? Um, I was just listening to All About Android's episode today, and they were talking about how Motorola is kind of stepping back from the Android Wear market and, and sort of taking a breather. Um, they're not upgrading to the new Android Wear 2 system because they're they're not sure, right? So this is kind of shaking up very similar to the smartphone market where, if your name's not Apple and your name's not Samsung, it's kind of financially irresponsible for you to make a device because um, they make all the profit. Right? You're just like right. losing money on everything. Um, and I think wearables suffers even more so from that because it's not a necessity device like a smartphone. Aaron, any thoughts? I agree with everything Jaime said. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. So, Aaron, do you want to tell us about your uh, experience with CarPlay after this many months? I was going to say, how many months has it been, by the way? Oh, um, I guess two months now. Maybe three. Mostly two. Say October-ish. So I got the new car. It's a 2016 Jetta. And I've uh, had CarPlay in there since then. I've plugged my phone into it. And when it works, it's fine. It does what I expect it to do. Uh, you guys don't have a CarPlay car, right? I do not. In fact... I'm okay. using the um, three and a half millimeter headphone jack adapter in my car, so I can plug <laughs> in the audio uh, to my iPhone Seven Plus. That is quote CarPlay unquote, but not actual CarPlay. It is playing actually. in my car. Yeah. Uh, who, who else chimed up when I said that? Well, I actually have a rental car this week, and it's a Volkswagen, but I don't know that it has CarPlay. I'm not sure how I tell. It does. I was able to pair it, but I don't think it's it's the same. You thing. have to plug it in with a lightning cable. Oh, so it has to be. Yeah, I, I probably should check, but yeah, don't know. No opinion. Okay, so yeah, no my, opinion uh, there. My car does not have CarPlay either, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so it's only going to uh, be apparent for people who buy new cars for the most part. They. It seems to be an option in many, if not most, new cars that you buy nowadays. Uh, has Android Auto and Apple CarPlay available. And obviously, I can't tell you about Android. But um, while the CarPlay app itself is pretty decent in terms of what it does for you, uh, I don't have a lot of demands of it. For one, I, I listen to my music on it. I use the Maps and uh, an Instacast to listen to my podcast when I'm in the car. Uh, that's not the problem with it when it works. It's just how it doesn't work or when it doesn't work that I think a lot of people aren't generally aware of. Um, there was an article written recently. I think the point that it raises is that cars are built over a, you know, a series of years, you know, they they don't, they're not developed on as quick a schedule as computers are definitely not 
mobile phones, for example. So they tend to use very low quality, if not just straight out of date parts, um, especially in the computers, uh, in the computer area of the car, the entertainment system, uh, which is driving CarPlay. So this is one area where Apple really suffers for not offering an integrated solution. They offer the software, but it's up to the car manufacturer to provide the hardware. And so they're, they're using like, uh, probably I'm guessing like some arm chip from four years ago in my brand new Jetta. Uh, consequently the system is, is somewhat separate from the rest of, uh, the Jetta systems. And, uh, it's kind of slow. It's, it's actually not just kind of, it's really, really slow. It takes a while to boot up. So when you plug your phone in, it says, uh, I think it says like engaging CarPlay, connecting device, dot, dot, dot. And you're sitting there waiting. And then about, I don't know, 40 to 50% of the time, it says connection failed. And then the phone makes that plug-in sound, like when you plug in a device. um, And it's like reacquiring. And then it fails again. And you cannot do anything about that. It, it will just continue to fail. You have two options at this point. The uh, the only known option that any given user might do is to unplug it and plug it back in. Um, hopefully, maybe it'll recognize it this time. Uh, that almost never works. Um, and meanwhile, it should be noted that the system, as I said, is quite slow. So it can take quite a bit of time for that connection fail to come up again. Um so it's very frustrating. Now, the other option that I had to look up because uh, it seemed to be the only thing that I could do is you can reboot the entertainment system uh, with a special trick. In the Jetta's case, you hold down the power button for 15 seconds, a full 15 seconds, and the system reboots and shows you the VW logo again. And that's how you know the system's coming back up again. And then you wait through the whole connection setup process and then generally it does connect and sometimes it fails at that point and then you're kind of screwed it's just not going to work this time uh it's completely arbitrary you have no idea why uh it's completely opaque you have no way to troubleshoot nothing to examine no no settings to twiddle uh you've really got nothing that you can do meanwhile uh my my drive is only about 10 minutes say <laughs> in many cases and i'm doing this while i'm driving and and kind of cursing no. at the car yeah well, I'm just playing with the stereo, basically. Um, but uh, it's really frustrating. It's super frustrating. E- so even in the best case scenario, I plug the phone in, I turn the car on, it connects successfully, and it brings up the CarPlay interface. That's a good 30 to 45 seconds. Um, and that's the best case scenario. Uh, in the worst case scenario, I just give up on it and I listen to the radio. Or nothing. Um, mm. And so that's a huge, huge downside to this whole experience. One thing I thought is that, you know, maybe it's just my Jetta. Maybe my Jetta sucks. I got a crappy car. <laughs> um, but the article that I'm linking to in the show notes, and when I find that article, um, that, that fellow is using a Honda Civic. And so uh, I think it's probably a, an issue that's just endemic to cars all over the place. So it's really unfortunate. So I just wanted to kind of bring that experience to you guys. Uh, if anyone out there who's listening to this, driving in their cars at home... <laughs> um, uh, is having a similar experience, I'd like to hear about it. Um, and if you're having a good experience, if you find that your experience is faster than what I'm talking about, I'd also love to hear that uh, because maybe there is a particular model or a, a manufacturer that's uh, that's actually doing a really good job with uh, CarPlay. But my my gut is saying that this is like one spot where 
Apple's kind of fallen behind, uh, not fallen behind, but, uh, hasn't, hasn't provided a great integration. It's sort of like the moto rocker of, uh, of car entertainment systems. And the thing is, is that it's, it's like the best, it's definitely the best in car computing experience you can get, but it has this like terrible, terrible flaw that where, um, the ultimate result being, I tend not to use CarPlay at all when I'm uh, going on a short trip. Uh, so it's really only when I am going somewhere on the highway that I bother to plug it in and get it working again. And that's uh, that's really unfortunate. Yeah. So it's probably not fair to completely blame Apple for this. So from my, that's right. from, yeah. from my days <laughs> in the semiconductor business I, and having worked on some electronics for automotive, uh, it, the the car companies tend to be enormously, extremely conservative with regards to their car electronics because there's obvious safety issues. If something goes wrong in there in, anywhere in the in the car electronics, and you know if the stereo blows a fuse somewhere else, and then you, your power steering is out, it's a it's a big big problem. That uh, and 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 if there's also uh, potentially. Um, uh, a lot of costs involved in upgrading the system if they find a major issue. So, so what they do is they they have extremely strict quality standards that they have to go through, and 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 testing that that just takes years uh, compared to co- consumer electronics, which can take you know weeks, and they'll ship a product because it's the cost to upgrade is relatively cheap. The cost to upgrade in a car is is is, is pretty high. Uh, so it's not that they're using low-quality components, but they are using old components because they're they're designing uh, the the system that you buy for the 2016 model. They're probably designing that in 2012 mm. for the for the cars uh, because it takes that long to get uh, to get everything approved and and all the safety standards and all the all the the the, the testing uh, done to get it out in time. Uh, so very likely, what we're seeing now is is a really old version of CarPlay, and and hopefully as time goes on, things will get better. They'll improve, and and hopefully the cars are able to have uh, upgrades, you know, firmware upgrades or whatever to to fix that as time goes on. But again, it'll take a long time before those firmware upgrades are approved before they'll ship it out to you. But hopefully, it will happen. So do we have yeah. to just think about what version of the iPhone had like pretty good, reliable Bluetooth and other chips in it, and then say, okay, plus another three to four years, and that's the <laughs> equivalent time frame for CarPlay? Like, that's that's wild. It sounds like we're I don't know. Let's see. So the 4S, uh, then five. So what? Like for the 5S probably. Yeah. Well, you know, with with Bluetooth, it's it's interesting. So my car, uh, which is a new car, it's 2016 as well. Uh, it was working. The Bluetooth was working fantastically with my iPhone six running iOS nine, flawless, seamless, never, not even a glitch ever. But as soon as I went to iPhone seven, iOS ten, I started having lots of problems, lots of issues with it dropping out, glitchy sound, and it's it's gotten better with each version of iOS, with each upgrade of iOS, but it's still not perfect. It's not nearly as good as it was with the with the iPhone six and iOS nine. So. I guess these things are cyclical, right? They they get good and then they and then they get they get bad again as soon as some new hardware comes out. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I've got a link for that uh, that article in the show notes now, uh, or in the uh, document. You can look at that if you like. It's on Max Stories. It was John Voorhees that wrote it. 
teach me to come prepared. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. I, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little surprised, you know, and I, and I take your point, Mark, and I, I think uh, that's exactly what's happening here. And I think, uh, that's what, uh, this article kind of describes too, is, is not necessarily the software. It's, it's the hardware. It's just, it's just crappy old hardware that, that can't handle it. And, um, I I guess there there are probably improvements that Apple can make, but it's kind of yeah. like the the Windows problem or the PC problem. Really, is that there's so many different hardware platforms that it might be running on that uh, it might be difficult to test and improve in a substantive way. Um, and I wonder if it's even possible. Like uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to take my car in for service, so I could ask. But uh, do, does my car get software updates? Uh, my previous one never did. Good question. But, uh, yeah. Perhaps. Uh, I would I would love for that to happen yeah. uh, because pretty by, much by 2016, be you know, it, it ought to, right? But, yeah, it but really ought to. <laughs> you yeah. think so? It'll be interesting to see whether the third-party aftermarket stereo solutions that include CarPlay will be better than the ones, the stock ones that come with your car yeah. in the near future. Like I know Pioneer makes uh, head units that support CarPlay. Uh, they were one of the first to the market with CarPlay when it came out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how well they're doing, of course, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very expensive too. Um, yeah, yeah. As you would expect. Yep. Yeah, this might play out like the in dash navigation systems that were really cool and then quickly got overrun by the smartphones. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Hmm. Oh, have you seen NavD, which uh, launched this week? Actually, so this makes it uh, much more interesting uh, topic. This was. Um, I just put the link into the document there. NavD is for cars like yours mark and and everyone else's that doesn't have carplay uh older vehicles and it's a device that sits on the dash right in front of the driver and projects like a little window onto your your uh windshield uh and and accepts voice commands and plugs into your car's uh you know that diagnostic port oh right yeah and cool. yeah so it, it's kind of plugged into your your car and you can control music and get maps and directions um, it doesn't do everything that CarPlay does, but uh, a substantial subset of that functionality. If you go to the site, uh, there's a great sandwich video uh, describing the service and how it works. Sure. Not yeah. cheap, though. Not cheap. Again, as you would expect. <laughs> um, it's like $700 or something like that. Yeah, it's like a heads-up display for your car. It's kind of cool. Yeah. There was a lot of stories, I don't know if you heard on the news today, Aaron, about uh, they were talking about, um, I guess it's one of the uh, flaws with the car market in general. Um, many, many cars are, are uh, have recalls on them, but, but the client customers don't even know about it. Oh, no. Did you hear that? Yeah, that was they were going on. And kind of wonder makes me wonder about what Mark was saying about the length of time it takes for them to react to things. Apparently there's a... There's an airbag recall that's out there um, where the, the, the airbag is in a Jeep, I believe, and, and uh, there's no known fix for it. Um, apparently, the airbags are, are prone to fail, and they could even cause you serious harm if they were to deploy. Things like that. And, and people, and they were saying that, you know, it's kind of weird that in this day and age, especially when we have internet connected cars as well, that um, people aren't being notified about uh, uh, the only way that our car manufacturers seem to be able to communicate with people is through surface mail. You know, through snail mail, right? Yeah. Uh, when, when yet they can they can send you invitations to come get your oil changed and you know get your tune up and all that kind of stuff, but they neglect to tell you that your Jetta has a CarPlay recall or something like that. Just making yeah. that up, folks. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just that's just a money thing, right? Because it's 
it's uh, their legal responsibility ends at offering the recall. But oh, okay, but right. they have to pay for it if you actually go in and and take advantage of the recall. Sure, well, sure. It's funny you mentioned that because I did just get a letter from Volkswagen uh, a couple weeks ago. There's a a recall on my Golf for a particular. Um, I want to say a fuse for my daytime running lights. I think that was it. Hmm. Uh, so that was a letter I got in the mail. Yeah. Weird. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's weird. I mean, they could have emailed me, I suppose, because they definitely have my email address, but I got this uh, piece of paper in the mail. Exactly. Yeah. It's very, very strange to get mail these days. It doesn't it happen that often. <laughs> so I don't know how this would work for the, private auto market. Um, but I could see something very similar to Boeing's airplane health management system that it offers for, for many of its aircraft where it is, you know, streaming important data from all bits and pieces, you know, from the, the engines, of course, uh, and other important pieces of, of the aircraft. Um, you know, interesting telemetry that will let their mechanics know, like, hmm, maybe we should add some more oil, or hmm, the left engine is kind of vibrating sort of funny, and, and we should schedule a maintenance action for that. Uh, you can imagine the same sort of thing for, you know, home automobile type stuff, where it's like, oh, well, you know, rather than just getting a, a check engine light, it's like, oh, well, it's terrible to be you, but we've just detected an oil leak. It would be kind of nice to know, like, hey, it kind of seems like the oil pressure has been dropping and dropping. We might actually have a leak before uh, yeah. you've you've lost too much oil. And and this update system for uh, updating your um, your actual cars information and, and software as well, and hopefully having that integrated into some sort of account systems, so that you won't just be you know randomly wondering, like, hey, what's this letter? You know this this deadwood letter that I received through snail mail. You might actually get an alert through your you know, your car maintenance app. That's like holy smokes! Like I need to go take in and and get rid of this this um, you know broken airbag system. It's not cheap. Well, let me tell you, Boeing's uh, airplane health management system is not cheap for the airlines. <laughs> but uh, somebody somewhere thinks it's worth it. So yeah. the higher end cars do have that. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily come to your house, but it shows up on a panel in the in the uh, on the dash. Or the entertainment hmm. system. Right. All right. I guess we're there. We appear to be there. Let's there do the picks. I don't have one. Let's Continue. do the picks. That was easy. All right. So, Jaime, do you have a pick? Yes. It's actually uh, two videos. Um, kind of two thoughts here on, on on why I chose these videos. So, this is the you know, tail end of the year. This As we record this is in, you know, December. And this is the time of the year when everybody starts thinking about, you know, what's happened during the year and just start reflecting on the past as well as future. So the first video is uh, of a TV interview with Steve Jobs. And this is just a little bit before he rejoins Apple. And he's, um, you know, he's working with Pixar and he's um, uh, dealing with Next. And it's a four-minute video. The interesting part I thought about it was, you know, in relation to our discussion last time about uh, protocol or sorry, yes, protocol oriented programming and sort of how it may not be the, the end all be all. I don't want to bring us back to what object oriented programming was going to do uh, as described uh, by Steve Jobs in this video. So it's about two minutes in into the video 
where he's describing it in, in layman's terms as like, this is a way that we can reuse software. So software up until this, till that point is, you know, a lot of it is like, it's just handcrafted and you're like redoing it every time. And uh, this will be like interchangeable parts, very similar to like how this is the industrial revolution of software where we can just like make use of all these huge gains. And I thought that was kind of a funny video for me to run across because uh, it, it's the sort of cyclical thing we run into, right? Where we discover something new, like, holy smokes, this is going to give us, you know, 10x gains on blah, blah, blah. And then we sort of realize, like, mm, it's not that great. It's, it's kind of good, but it's okay. And I feel like we're kind of coming around on the hype cycle for uh, protocol-oriented programming. And we, of course, have already gone through that cycle with object-oriented programming, right? Nobody's saying that OOP is going to, like, solve all your problems in software. In fact, quite the opposite, right? The the, the counter action to that was was uh, protocol-oriented programming. It was like, no, 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 nothing is an object. Everything is just like a struct. Everything is has value semantics and, and objects which inherently have stateful semantics. Uh, no, that's not good. You don't want state. So just look back at this one, think about it a little bit, um, reflect on it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if any of you guys have seen this video, but I, I found it kind of uh, kind of cute because I feel like it it touches a lot of the same points that we we've talked about recently. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. Either. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah it, it's short, only about four minutes. Uh, the object oriented programming stuff I talked about is about two minutes in, um, and the other one was just kind of more for fun. This is a short thirty second commercial from uh, Wang Laboratories Inc., and this is apparently from the year nineteen eighty. And in this commercial, they, they cover their whole like business solution thing that they offer word processing. And who, who's talked about that in a, in a long time? Uh, data processing and their, quote, electronic mail system, <laughs> where <laughs> the other part was like, soon New York can be around the corner from Paris, London from Tokyo, and San Francisco next to Rome. I'm like, holy smokes, this is like... A really cool video it's about as 80s as a video gets um <laughs> with like these different lasers flying everywhere and this rainbow color and like weird random awkward shots of uh, what i assume are supposed to be employees or perhaps customers it's not really clear from the video <laughs> um so i thought that was fun just kind of see how how far we've come in the past you know what 36 years this electronic mail thing is gonna be hot uh, folks yeah, just plug in your 300 baud modem, and four hours later, that email will get there, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll get my, you know, my recall notices through this electronic mail yeah, thing. That'd right. be really convenient, <laughs> wouldn't it? Nice. I'm just enjoying the commercial right now. I like yeah, you can see the, the 80s special effects that they have. Like the intro part of it reminds me of the intro to the 1980s. Uh, cartoon show called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Right. Yeah. 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 Was it Tron out in 1980? Something like that. Yeah. Back to the Future. Yeah. There's actually a pretty funny one. If you've ever seen it before, but I think it's um, the Today Show or something like that. One of those uh, you know magazine shows that they do on on one of the major networks talking about this new thing called the Internet. Have you seen that one? No. Yeah. It's like Bryant Gumble talking about what this new what's this new Internet thing I keep hearing about. You know. Worldwide. Oh, but. is it with Katie Couric? Maybe, maybe, yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and yeah, uh, one that. one yeah. of the Gumbles, right? Like Brian Gumble yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Talking about the future of computing. Yeah, those are painful to look at. It was like, holy smokes, <laughs> was that? <laughs> it, it, not because of like you know their lack of knowledge. It's, it's not like nobody knew about that stuff at that time, which is the whole reason it was uh, newsworthy to bring on there. Yeah, it's yeah. just like wow, this is like 
not an optional part of my life. This is right. like, it would yeah. be strange. It'd be like disconnecting myself from electricity to not have that. Yeah. There's a, there's a new podcast kind of show that, uh, they do these sort of retro eighties looking, um, discussions about current technology which is it's very strange to watch they do the sort of they have the people lined up like they had back in the old cable access tv shows talking about stuff i'll see if i can find a link for that and put it in notes anywho moving on um mr ribbon what do you got for us my pick is an article that's called inside the secret meeting where apple revealed the state of its ai research now it's a little bit clickbaity because it's not really that uh that dramatic but but it's, it's kind of an interesting article. So apparently Apple has hired a new head of machine learning, hence the, the interest in the article going with the theme that we've been talking about last few podcasts. Um, so anyway, they've, they've hired a new head of machine learning uh, who's also a professor at Carnegie Mellon. And hmm. it seems like they now have a much more open view on sharing their research with with the academic community. So so people from Apple and the research teams will now be talking to conferences and, and things like that. So so this was at this is this article talks about a uh a conference in Spain uh called NIPS two thousand sixteen, uh where this guy Russ Selak uh who's the new head of uh, of machine learning, uh gave a lunch talk, which was just an overview of, of what's happening at Apple now in, in machine learning research. And there's not a huge amount of information here. In fact, there's only a, a few screenshots that it looks like somebody took with a camera because this wasn't a, wasn't really a public conference, but I don't think, you know, think there's any rules are being broken by this article being put out, but, but it, but it does give you kind of a, a, a broad view of, of, of what they're looking at. Uh, and there's things like uh, health and vital signs is one issue area they're inter- interested in. Volumetric detection of LIDAR, which is light detection and ranging. So it's similar to, to radar, but for lasers. An obvious application of that is things like self-driving cars. So you can see why they're interested in that. Uh, so there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff, uh, image processing, colorization, intelligent assistant and language modeling, uh, a couple couple more. Um and the real interesting thing, beyond the fact that Apple's working on this stuff, and of course we knew they were, is the fact that they're now talking about working on this stuff, which I think is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because now, if you know, with academics att- attracting people, research, good research people, you know, the, what are the one of their driving factors is that they want to talk about their research and presenting conferences and things like that. And if Apple wasn't allowing people to do that. They might not have been getting the best people working on their stuff. They'd go to somewhere else where they are allowed to to do more things like that. So, so the fact that they're now allowing their researchers to 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 talk about it uh, hopefully means that they'll get even more good researchers and and do more great things and and uh, improve the situation for all of us users. Yeah, I thought that part was interesting about the now they can publish this sort of thing that. That sort of was getting past the, the hurdle of, I mean, let's just be honest, right? If you're, you know, an academic researcher, um, the whole currency of the land for your job type is published papers. Exactly. Not, hey, I did this hidden thing that, trust me, I, I totally did at Apple and you right. know, I never actually shipped the product, but trust me, I did some cool stuff. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, 
how some of this stuff will shake out in the future, but it is pretty cool, I think, to see that a lot of this stuff will be published because it, it is, I think, to everyone's betterment to have uh, things like uh, you know, like Google's uh, TensorFlow out there right. that right. Like, everybody can use. Interesting stuff. So portends good things. Yeah, I'm still holding out hope for, I don't know, some sort of Siri-enabled home device, like uh, very similar to the Amazon Echo or the Google Home. So I, I think that might help fit all the pieces that I would need, at least in my own personal life. Cool stuff. All right. So that it? Okay. That's it. That's all, folks. That's all she wrote. All right. So, Aaron, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? Go to Twitter at Aaron Bay. And honey? I'm also on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? Mark R at smapsoft.com. All right. And I, once again, I'm Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And thus ends another episode of More Than Just Code. This is friend of the show, Katie. And another friend, Jesse. We hope that you enjoy the show as much as we do, including the parts about code. And also the parts about more than code. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode, with links to the items talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you can, please rate the review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help with spreading the word. The show is also on Twitter and Facebook, the Twitter account being MTJC underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. That's what we do. Thanks for listening with us. Let's either have the same amount of fun or more next time. So we have the 14th and then the 20th. So we have two more episodes then to to record. Are we going to end on a a season-ending cliffhanger? Like yeah. Mr. Know. Worf, fire. Kind of will, we, will we all be our, moving our to Canada? Shot, like, uh, like who shot JR? Mm. Yes. Well, when does the Star Wars movie come out, Tim? Uh, the hmm, – good question. 16th, I think, right? Okay. 15th. Yeah, I'm going on the 15th, so it's the day after we were, uh, this is Thursday. So is that an evening showing? Is that like at 12.01? Oh, it's at 7.30 on the 15th. Okay. I thought it was like a midnight showing that was technically the 16th, but I consider yeah. it still part of the 15th because I haven't gone to bed and woken up again. Yeah, no, they started doing this a while ago. In fact, that, um, I mean, the first time I saw Star Wars was on a Friday night, and but it had opened on a Thursday, like the very first uh, show. The episode four, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so it's kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, so we've, we've been going kind to see it on the first day. Yeah. I got nice. my ticket. Did you? When are you going? The Friday, the 6th. Uh, 16th. 16th. Yeah, yeah, cool. What time? Uh, 6.45, I think. Mm, cool. And you're yeah. just going reg- regular, plain, old, ordinary, like the last time? Yeah, yeah. I don't like 3D. I don't like IMAX. Cool. All right. Uh, I'm getting a spinning bubble. Well, beach ball. Okay. You know, so I told you, like, uh, I I put this uh, one terabyte drive in my MacBook Air, 
And it's been, I haven't really been using it all that much, but it's been very beach ball-y. I'm not, you know, I had trouble installing the OS in it. Yeah, so I ended up like, I, I guess, I mean, the first, I guess the first uh, signal was it came formatted already for the Mac, right? So I didn't bother, you know, running this utility and formatting. I think probably because it's got this giant heatsink on it and you got to stick it in your Mac and, you know, how are most people going to, I guess you could use the recovery disk mode on uh, your MacBook to to reformat it or whatever. But yeah, and then when I I cloned over my uh, my operating system, I've never had trouble doing that in the past. And like all of the applications wouldn't work, the App Store app wouldn't work. Um, so I, I eventually um, so I tried reinstalling, you know, by by holding on Command R and going to Apple and getting a new build and and uh, doing, a, doing a, essentially a clean install over top of the operating system. Yeah. And it was still buggy. It, it loaded up okay this time, but still none of the apps would work. So I, I had to plug in my old drive, which fortunately it comes with a case to put the old drive in. Yeah. And I, and I literally had to go through every app and copy over every app on top of each, each, each other app to get them to work properly. It was like it was weird. It's like I wasn't lined, signed into the app store or something. Like they would just they would do a single bounce and then nothing, right? So, uh, and it's been pretty beach y considering you know that it's supposedly a faster mechanism than the original one, right? Yeah. I wonder if if iOS has or not iOS macOS has some kind of caching of. I think we talked about this. Does is it caching yeah. the uh, or or hashing rather? Hashing some kind of ID into the soft into the iOS, right? Some kind of device ID for the drive into macOS somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. If it doesn't match, then that could be part of the new emphasis on security from Apple. Well, I mean, like the thing, I think we talked about this before. I I went to a security talk from Apple, and, and they were talking about how. Every time the OS loads, it, lo- it randomly places things. It, like, doesn't always use the same blocks for stuff, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, that that is part of the security because you know, then you know, then people hackers can't know. Okay, well, this particular block is always in this spot on the drive, sort of thing. Right, 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 right. right. So they randomize that. Um, that could be part of it, but then you know, and, and I'm using Carbon Copy Cloner, which you know I've never had a problem with before. And also, when I had the original Retina Mac, it came with like a two. 56 gig drive right and um i had bought a, a an envoy drive from aurora like an aurora ssd it's the product mac what are you doing from from owc and i ran that without any problems you know for a while until i sold that mac right so i yeah. you know yeah, so. or or it could be the hardware right i mean it's you know it's it's if you have basically it's just a big set of ram right and if something yeah. is is yeah. uh if you get a bad bit somewhere in the wrong spot it could just cause everything now well so and, and, and the reason i bought this one was because it was the only one that sort of advertised for the macbook air and it's got the it actually has the apple style connector right um I, I don't know what type of connector that is but then i was also doing some more research on on other upgrades and apparently there's a standard type of um a connector for ssd drives that's used in um by other manufacturers. Let me just open up Slack here. Somebody, some people make like little sleds that you can buy a standard SSD drive and pop it in, and then it interfaces with the Apple connector. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. N- NVMe 2.0 is the is the style of connector that's uh, pretty standard these days. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of that or. Oh, today's December seventh, Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah. Yeah. There was a picture of Pearl Harbor on uh, taken from a satellite today, sort of showing how you know I guess how the 
it's sort of like a, I guess, a landlocked um, uh, bay, I guess, or harbor, right? Not completely, but there's kind of. But a it's sort of like a very, very narrow exit, right? And I yep. guess the, uh, yep. they, they couldn't really yep. sort of sail out of there when they were under attack. You can imagine, right? Right. right. Yeah, because it was too fast. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting place to visit sometime. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a fun place. It's kind of a somber place, but uh, oh, yeah? it, but it's interesting. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Have you been? To, it's in Hawaii, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. You go. There's a there's a museum kind of right on the on the uh, on the edge of the of the water, and then you get on a on a boat, and they sail you out to the USS Arizona, which is actually completely right. submerged. It's underwater, uh, and you can kind of look down, and and if the water's clear, you can actually see the boat under the water mm-hmm. which is kind of kind of an interesting thing mm. but it's really it's a really somber place i mean it's not <laughs> it's 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 you know it's not uh let's go have a picnic kind of place <laughs> yeah but it's worth going once